From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Glad that you are with us today. Before we start today's program, got an important announcement. Want to know? Want you to know about? On December 2nd, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in the abortion case Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. And in preparation, FRC is leading the effort for a national prayer event that will be taking place on the evening of Sunday, November 28th in Jackson, Mississippi. The live event, Pray Together for Life, will kick off in person at New Horizon Church at 6.30 p.m. Central Time, and the live national broadcast will begin at 7 p.m. Central Time. So mark your calendars for that important event as we pray for life website and details to come. Now, today on the program, the Biden administration has been using emergency authority to create vaccine mandates for large employers and federal employees. What is the emergency? Is this legal? We'll talk about that today. Sunday, this Sunday, will be the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. We'll get an update from Voice of the Martyrs on this important day. Free speech at the end of the program, the right to bear arms, the right to get an abortion. How should Christians think about the issue of freedom? That's our discussion in our Worldview segment today. But first, the headlines. It's not every day that the academic ivory tower of Harvard offers bad news for the Biden administration. But amazingly, a recent poll by Harvard's Center for American Political Studies found that a whopping 58% of Americans, when asked if they would favor or oppose a $1.5 to $2 trillion social spending bill that would be financed by increasing the deficit and tax increases, opposed the costly measure. This, in addition to the bill's anti-family policies and trillions upon trillions of dollars in spending. Well, Congressman August Fluger is here to highlight some of the concerns he has with the bill. Congressman, welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph, thank you for having me today. Well, so glad to have you. You've been tracking this bill. Uh, From your perspective, what are your concerns? Well, how long do we have? Because the concerns are just incredibly long. You know, when you really, when you dive into this bill, which I, you know, the famous quote from Nancy Pelosi was that we have to pass it in order to find out what's in it. Well, that's unacceptable when you're talking about literally thousands of pages. I mean, just last night, they introduced over 400 pages of new text in the rules committee. And the most concerning thing that I see with this is the narrative that it's not going to cost Americans anything. It is going to cost every American many things. When you look at the prices that we are facing right now at the pump, in the grocery store, everyday goods, it's going to be the most expensive Thanksgiving on record. This bill will make that a permanent expense that we are going to see for years to come because we've got $1.3 trillion in new taxes. And they say that it's not going to affect people that make less than $400,000. Well, that's just not true. One of the things that I'm most concerned about, because I, I represent the Permian Basin, I represent rural Texas, where we produce an amazing amount of energy for this country, is that they are adding taxes to our energy producers 
every American is going to feel that. It's going to hit us in our main street businesses. It's going to hit us in the trucking industry. It's going to hit us as we go to the pump and we fill up our cars. And, the, and as an offset, what they're looking to do is have a handout for people who buy electric vehicles. It just doesn't make sense right now. We're going to see a, a major energy crisis, and it's already developed in Europe. It's going to hit our shores eventually. But this is something that every American should be very worried about, is that the Biden administration is not unleashing the innovation of private industry, of private entrepreneurs. They are actually stifling it with an overregulated posture that's going to continue to hurt our economy and hurt our pocketbooks. I think one of the reasons the administration continues with this line that it's not going to cost anything is because they have information sim- similar to what that Harvard poll found that 58% of Americans are opposed to a major spending plan when they understand that it is going to cost people something. You can't spend trillions of dollars and have it cost nothing from someone. They're taking it from the American economy, from the American people somewhere. Now, in addition to that, though, the Republican Study Committee has published a list of issues that they're concerned about. And there are some things here that are that are interesting and concerning, and I'm hoping you can illuminate a little bit more for us. Recently, this week, the negotiations have been about price controls for prescription drugs. Why is that a concern? Well, I mean, it, it's one of many concerns. And, and before I address that, let me just say that you know, uh, Jim Banks and, and the Republican Study Committee is doing a wonderful job highlighting these issues and illustrating just how dangerous this bill is. And one of the issues we brought forward this week is that the Congressional Budget Office, per House rules, per the Speaker of the House's own rules, has to score a bill before it's voted on. And that has not happened. And the American public deserves to know what the impact is going to be fiscally. When you look at prescription drugs, when you look at any other aspect of this bill, we want to know that there's a transparent and and competitive process that's going on in our free market system. And so I think that's, you can apply that across the board. Uh, The RSC has done a really good job of highlighting those issues. And I I hope they continue to do that, to to tell us why these things are bad, where consumers are going to be paying and overpaying in a lot of cases without knowledge of what that transparency is. And I think that's really at the heart of the matter for, for, for the prescription, prescription drug issue. Now, you mentioned earlier Nancy Pelosi's now infamous quote, we have to pass it to find out what's in it. And of course, at that moment, she was referring to Obamacare. Are they taking a similar strategy and hoping that the outcome is the same? We're going to pass something that people don't know anything about and might not be excited about, but it's the only way to get it through. Is that the approach here? It sure appears that way, you know, and, and we're looking at history and, and making sure that uh, that we can play good defense by by going on the offensive. And I think if there's a bright spot, it was Tuesday night where all across the country, especially here, you know, right next to the nation's capital in the state of Virginia, voters came to the polls and they said enough is enough. If you're not going to be transparent at the state level, at the county level and certainly at the school board level, then we are going to vote people in who are going to be transparent and they are going to give us the real information and tell us what's in the proposed legislation. And that's what people are so upset about. Enough is enough is what America said on Tuesday night. And I sure hope that we that we learn those lessons that we go forward and we hold everyone accountable for decisions that are being made. And us as lawmakers, you know, with my background in the military, it's so important that trust is part of what 
this country was built on and that our institutions have trust. And I think Congress as a whole, there's such a low level of trust. And it's because of this, the Speaker of the House bringing a multi-thousand page bill to the floor and, and not being able to communicate what's inside it. That, that's anti-American. It's anti what our framers intended for this process to be. Another provision that is getting attention is the apparent removal of language that prohibited funds from being used or grants being given uh, in places that would use forced labor of the Uyghur Muslims in China. Of course, that's an incident uh, that's received national attention because of the human rights abuses. This bill previously had language saying, we're not going to give money to anybody who's exploiting the Uyghur Muslims. Any insight into why that language has been removed? Well, I don't know the motivation why it's removed, but I think it goes to accountability. As a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, um, I've taken part in uh, many conversations and, and proposed legislation and amendments that would hold the Chinese Communist Party accountable for their persecution. And I think genocide uh, is, is a word that should be used um, to, to figure out what is going on and how these Uyghur Muslims are being persecuted. When I was able to speak to a survivor, a, a Uyghur Muslim female who had the courage to come forward, her story was heartbreaking. Her courage was so inspiring. So why Nancy Pelosi would remove this from the language is beyond any comprehension because the CCP must be held accountable for atrocities at this level. It is concerning, and I think we would expect that uh, not supporting genocides is a bipartisan issue, and I think for the most part it is, which is why it's such a strange development that that appears to have been removed from the most recent draft of this legislation. Another issue Two and a half billion dollars set aside for a fund uh, designed to do, among other things, advanced tree equity. Any insight into what tree equity is? Well, this goes into the category of you can't make that up. And when it comes to these these different pots of money, I think, you know, no, I I don't have insight as to what that would go towards. But um, is anyone in America against trees? Uh, Of course not. You know, we, we definitely want this planet to be left into a better, in a better shape than we inherited it to the next generation to, to gain a planet that's going to have sustainability. But listen, the, the power of the purse strings is a legislative authority. And one of our concerns in, in a conservative mindset is that the executive branch gets these pots of money, which gives them the power to then just dole out that money to whoever they want with very little accountability. And we're trying to take that back. The legislative branch, as a co-equal branch of government, needs to take that back. The authority needs to be here. And if there are different programs that that are not in line with that and the accountability isn't what it should be, and I think the point of this is maybe this is a good program, but probably it's not, and we need the accountability. We need to understand where it's going to go, what it's going to be used for, and how it's going to benefit the American taxpayer. Now, shifting gears on you just a little bit, the Biden administration has finally released its long-awaited OSHA guidelines about their uh, vaccine mandate. Now that we have the details, what's your reaction? Well, I think what you're seeing is they understand uh, just how damaging and how overreaching the initial guidance was. This morning, I spoke with employees uh, in, in a manufacturing company in my district who are extremely concerned 
with the the mandate and have very good reasons as to why they don't want to take the vaccine. Now, look, I'm, I'm vaccinated. It was right for me. But I don't think it's right for anybody in government to then tell somebody that they need to go take this. That's something between them and their doctor. Um, and so, you know, I think what you see with this latest round is that the deadline has now been moved back a, another two months into January. So January 4th. And it also it also offers more flexibility. So you're not going to lose your job if if you don't take the vaccine, if you can then comply with wearing a mask or being socially distanced or maybe testing every week. And so I, I think they've realized, like they saw on Tuesday, the Democrat Party is seeing the outcry all across America that they don't want a mandated, overregulated posture. And that is so dangerous for our country. And they have walked it back and, and are trying to save face. My hope is that we can get rid of it completely. And that's what I've pushed for by um, hoping to get a congressional review action to overturn the executive order. I, I think you might be right that in some ways the American people have called the bluff of the Biden administration and said, we don't want this to happen. What are you going to do about it? Do you actually mean what you say? And it appears the Biden administration may not have actually meant what they said, which, of course, would be a good thing. But there's much more on that. But for now, Congressman Fluger, really appreciate your time being with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we are going to continue covering this story when we come up after the break. Are these new regulations actually legal? Is there really an emergency that the Biden administration claims justifies these mandates. That's going to be our conversation when we come back with Roger Severino, who's the Ethics and Public Policy Center's Senior Fellow. Stay with us. We'll be back right after the break. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and he has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's Word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the Church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why Scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. 
to get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, interviews, and publications. Sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. Thanks for joining us. Biden's vaccine mandate on private employers has finally been released. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration published the emergency temporary standard in the Federal Register, making it official that employees at businesses with at least 100 employees must be vaccinated or undergo weekly testing. This is, of course, on top of the federal mandate that people who work for the federal government or are federal contractors or members of the military also have to get the jab or else. Is this really an emergency that justifies these orders? Is the Biden administration acting lawfully? To help unpack this rule is Roger Severino, who's a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Roger, welcome back to Washington Watch. Glad to be back. Well, first, uh, are there any surprises in the actual rules based on uh, what they had told us was going to happen? Not really. This decision was pre-cooked. Now, I recall that the president himself originally said he did not have the legal authority to do a vaccination mandate. Well, look how much has changed since then. He ordered OSHA to issue this mandate. And normally you don't just tell an agency what to do. They're required to do fact finding, have open comment period, let the public have their say. But no, it was a presidential order. So we should not be surprised that OSHA did what they were told, which is it's effectively find a way to impose a national mandate using whatever trick in the book they had. This is coming out of OSHA, a small agency with the Department of Labor, as opposed to, I don't know, the Department of Health and Human Services, which you would expect would be the agency to to have authority over health. But they picked OSHA because that's the best they can do. It's a fig leaf to cover their push for a national mandate. And they're using this emergency standard that I don't think really holds water. Do you think the lack of following protocol, hearing, hearing, public hearing periods and things like that is one of the grounds on which this will be challenged? Yeah, the standard is, is it arbitrary and capricious and contrary to law? To run around the regulatory process, which normally takes years, from four to 11 years for an OSHA regulation, to get past that, they declared that this was a grave danger in the American workplace, and therefore they needed to impose this emergency standard. Well, we've had COVID for quite some time. The vaccination rates are approaching 70% for at least one shot. 
what is unique about the federal workplace as opposed to any other place in America that makes it uniquely dangerous? It was their burden to show not only that a workplace is dangerous, they're saying that workers are dangerous. And that's just not part of the authority. If you think about OSHA, they regulate the heights for railings in construction sites or chemical exposures in chemical plants. Here, they're treating the workers themselves as some sort of a threat in the workplace. And that's just not how OSHA was designed. It was about the workplace, not workers. You refer to the grave danger, and that, of course, is required for there to be an emergency order of this kind. The law gives those emergency, uh, emergency powers when they have determined that there is a grave danger. What did they do to justify that? What did they say? Is there any kind of finding that they even referenced to say there's a grave danger in the American in the workplace that justifies these new rules? It, it's it's rather weak. And I made a presentation on behalf of the Ethics and Public Policy Center to OSHA before they adopted the rule. And the one issue they raised was the question of grave danger. And first, most people in the workplace that are at risk are on, of the older variety. However, in the American workplace, you don't have retirees in the workplace. They are retired. So the people most at risk in the workplace are not in the workplace, right? In, in limited numbers, they are. So that was one of my major points. I said, you have to tailor the risk. This is not a national issue under your authority. Your authority is the workplace. So what is unique about workplace dangers? They're not able to point to anything specific. When you think about the massive variety of workplaces, you have people who work in construction, outdoors by and large. You have some businesses that are already requiring their folks to be vaccinated, and they're above 95% vaccination. Are you going to impose a mandate on them? There's uh, workplaces that already have very strict rules on masking, testing, and social distancing. So they're using a shotgun approach to treat all workplaces the same and all workers as somehow threats, and they do not have the evidence to back it up, um, especially now that we have improved treatments, such as the one that Pfizer is close to putting in trials that cut the risk of death and hospitalization by 90% if you already have COVID. They're acting as if this is a brand new threat from a year and a half ago, as opposed to the modern data we have now. And that's that's where they're going to be legally at risk. Are there any examples of this administration or other administrations using this emergency power, citing workplace grave dangers that would help us understand whether this is appropriate or somehow unprecedented? Well, OSHA has done this before, but in other instances, it was litigated, and five out of the eight times they did it, they lost in court. And famously in the 80s, with regard to asbestos in the workplace, they tried to use the emergency standard, and they lost. It, it, is, it is a tough thing to do to simply declare that the entire American work, workplace is now a, a place of grave danger. When we've, we've lived with this virus for so long, and they're not even taken into account, natural immunity. That shows that it is irrational. If you are saying that we're going to ignore people who have natural immunity and we're going to require them to be vaccinated because they also present a grave danger, that is flatly unscientific to lump them all together. But this is what you would expect when it's rushed. You don't do the cost-benefit analysis. And when the president himself had ordered it, it was already baked in that they were going to do this. They didn't listen to the counsel I gave when I presented to OSHA. They're not going to listen to the American people. They may listen to a federal judge when I hope this gets struck down as beyond the authority of OSHA. 
We've got about a minute left. Speaking of federal judges, we've already heard reports of lawsuits being filed against these regulations now that they have been released. What are you expecting in the courts? Well, you will see a lot of skepticism from the courts on this. As we saw in the Supreme Court when it came to religious liberty, at some point, you have to end the declaration of emergency. At some point, all of a sudden, you've changed the baseline where we're always under emergency. When we're under emergencies, that's when liberties are put most at risk. And this has been quite a long time to be declared under an emergency. And they didn't act before. They, and I think that window has now closed. Infections are down 57% since its peak a couple months ago. Um, they, they are now more trying to make a point than address the, the public health concern the right way. To borrow from a favorite movie of mine, The Incredibles, when everything's an emergency, nothing is an emergency. Roger Severino, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Stay with us. When we come back, we're going to talk about an important event this Sunday, an international day of prayer for the persecuted. We'll talk to the voice of the martyrs right after the break. Stay with us. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Finley Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Remind you that the website is TonyPerkins.com. This Sunday is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. Christians around the world will be pausing to pray for our brothers and sisters who do not have the privilege and luxury of living in a free society to practice their faith openly like we do here. And to pray for our brethren that are being imprisoned, mistreated, and killed for declaring that Jesus is Lord. The list of countries where being a Christian means almost certain persecution are too numerous to count. Places like China, 
North Korea, Nigeria, Afghanistan, and more, all have brothers and sisters who face daily persecution that we, thankfully, can only imagine. Joining me to highlight this important day of prayer is Todd Nettleton, Voice of the Martyrs, Chief of Media Relations and Message Integration. Todd, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much. It's good to be with you. Uh, We are glad to have you. Tell us why this day is so important. Well, it's important because Scripture tells us to remember those in prison as if we were in prison with them. So if you and I were in prison, what would we want to know? We'd want to know that people were praying for us. Secondly, though, it's important because when we go here at Voice of the Martyrs, when our staff goes and sits down with persecuted Christians and we say, we're going back to America, we're going to talk to Christians there, how can they help you? The first thing they ask us to do every time we ask that question is pray for us. So the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians is not only an answer to what Scripture calls us to do, it's an answer to the first request of our persecuted brothers and sisters. Now, Todd, give us some examples of those conversations. Who are you talking to? What situations are they in? Well, so many are in prison. They are beaten. They are uh, fired from their jobs. They're kicked out of their homes. Two that I think of right off the top of my head. One is a pastor named Pastor Wang Yi. He is right now serving a nine-year prison sentence in China for the so-called crime of running an unregistered church, leading an unregistered church in China. His wife, Zhang Rong, is basically under house arrest. She's been cut off from the other church members, cut off from members of her family. Their son, Joshua, is picked up every day in a police car and driven to the Communist Party school where he can be indoctrinated all day long. Those are the kind of people that we're praying for this weekend Another one that comes to my mind is a pastor named Haile Naizki. And Pastor Haile, I met personally on a visit to Eritrea. He has now been in prison more than 17 years. And like the almost 200 other Christians imprisoned in Eritrea, he's never been charged with a crime. He's never had a trial. He never had a chance to defend himself. He simply got arrested one day, disappeared into the Eritrean prison system, and now it's been 17 years plus that he has been suffering in prison. Again, those are the kind of people we're praying for this Sunday on the International Day of Prayer for Persecuted Christians. And the least we can do is pray for them. And and we do appreciate you just bringing these stories to our attention, because truly, in the comfort of our Western lives, we just can't imagine what life is like for so many other people. And the prospect of simply being taken from your home one day and never coming back for 17 years, and you you don't even have a prospect of returning home. Now, you've mentioned Eritrea, you mentioned China. Where are the places in the world that persecution for Christians is most intense? You know, I think you have to say North Korea is one of the hardest places to be a Christian. Uh, I like to say North Korea is a prison camp disguised as a country. So everybody there is oppressed. Everybody there is persecuted. But followers of Jesus are singled out for the very worst persecution. And the reason for that is because the Kim family are presented as divine beings. So when you say, I follow Jesus, it's not just a matter of, hey, that's a foreign religion, or hey, we don't believe that here. It literally undermines the Kim regime, because if Jesus is Lord, then Kim Jong-un is not Lord. And so following Christ is not just a different religion, it literally is treason against the government in North Korea. Which is a 
terrifying state to live in. And, and there's, of course, so many theological uh, implications of that claim. And throughout history, that's really not that unusual. Caesar uh, believed the same things, and first century Christians faced some of the same threats because they denied the fact that Caesar was ultimately Lord. But uh, Todd, tell us, are we seeing, what are the trends that you're observing? You monitor religious freedom around the world. What are the trends you're seeing globally? Well, let me share a good news, bad news story. The, the bad news is there's more persecution. When, when we look around the world, when we look at the more than 70 countries where Christians are persecuted, there are more countries, there is more persecution as time goes on. But here's the uh, sort of other side of that story, the good news side. Part of the reason there's more persecution is it's because the church is growing, because people are being reached with the gospel, are making that decision to follow Christ. And so there are more Christians, therefore, potentially more targets for persecution. And so as we see more persecution, we are also seeing the church grow. And so, like I say, it is it is both good news and bad news, because that growth is coming at a high price to our brothers and sisters. So finally, last question for you. This Sunday is the International Day of Prayer uh, for our persecuted brothers and sisters. Very practically speaking, what can we pray for? What can we do in other ways to help? You know, I would encourage people to pray for protection but also to pray for encouragement, pray for a sense of, of God's presence and connection with the body of Christ around the world. One of the things I often pray as I pray for persecuted Christians is, Lord, right now, let them know that we're praying for them. Let them supernaturally experience our prayers because one of the lies of persecutors, one of the lies of Satan is, you're all alone here. Nobody remembers you. You are completely forgotten. And so I pray that the Holy Spirit will say, you're not forgotten. And in fact, somebody's praying for you right at this moment. Todd Nettleton, Voice of the Martyrs, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been good to be with you. Coming back, we're going to continue this conversation about freedom, how Christians should think about it today. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. 
In Scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting for Tony on this Friday. So glad that you are with us. In the last segment, we had the chance to talk to Todd Nettleton from the Voice of the Martyrs about international religious freedom issues and the concerns for persecuted Christians around the globe and what they are facing. Now, in America, we talk a lot about freedom as well. Some people claim that we have the freedom to keep and bear arms, while others claim they have a freedom to abortion. It's clear that freedom means different things to different people, and largely that's influenced by where you live and what you're concerned about. But how should Christians think about freedom? That's the topic for today's Worldview Conversation with my colleague and FRC's Director of the Center for Biblical Worldview, David Clausen. David, welcome back. Hey, great to be with you on this Friday, Joseph. Well, we are glad to have you. This is a tangled issue that I'm hoping that you can help us untangle a little bit. Because as in many conversations, we use words and we think we know what they mean. And when I say freedom, you have a sense of what I'm referring to. And when you say freedom, I have a sense of what you're referring to. But oftentimes we use the same words, but we have different dictionaries. Uh, I'm going to start this off um, in, in our constant American conversations about freedom. Is it wrong? Christians are not supposed to be selfish, right? We're not supposed to look out for our own best interest. Does that mean it's wrong for Christians to care about and desire freedom? Well, I don't think it's wrong at all, and I think we absolutely should be the, the people uh, that desire freedom, not just for ourselves, but for our friends and neighbors as well. And, and so, Joseph, let's d- define our terms. You mentioned the dictionary, so I actually pulled up uh, right now uh, the Webster, uh, Merriam-Webster's definition of freedom, and the way uh, Merriam-Webster defines freedom is the quality or state of being free, uh, meaning the absence of coercion, the absence of constraint in choice or action. So liberation from slavery 
or from any other sort of external power. So in the previous segment, you talked to the guy at the Voice of the Martyrs, and what he described is a, a lack of freedom around the country, and what we mean by, or excuse me, around the world for Christians, meaning they can't uh, live out their faith. They, they can't order their lives in accordance with their deeply held beliefs. That That's an absence of freedom, uh, which is for the most part in our own history, uh, not what we've enjoyed in this country. We've had broad freedoms to live, to order our lives pretty much uh, according to the dictates of our own conscience. You know, that's exactly right. How do you how do you sense this issue being dealt with? You know, the dictionary has a definition. You have a definition. I have a definition. Kind of the Western world has a definition of freedom. And certainly that definition of, uh, is different likely than in Eritrea and in probably because they deal with different freedom issues. There are different um, uh, sensitivities. But how does scripture deal with the issue of freedom? Yeah, that's a great question because uh, you and I often, and I, I've get, have done this in a, for a couple of years now here in Washington, D.C., uh, be an advocate for religious freedom. And what I, the reason I advocate for religious freedom is not necessarily uh, first and foremost on philosophical grounds. It's because I believe the Bible, that there's theological rationale uh, for why we should have freedom uh, to follow the Lord according to the dictates of our conscience. Uh, you, you see that throughout the New Testament, Joseph. One of the reasons, again, we, we advocate for religious freedom here at the Family Research Council is because think about the way Paul, uh, he would persuade, he'd make arguments, he'd make compelling cases for why you should follow Jesus. You know, Jesus himself during his ministry, I think of the, the story of the rich young ruler. He, he came to Jesus, wanted to follow Jesus, uh, didn't want to give up his wealth though. And so Jesus allowed him to walk away. Jesus didn't run after him and try to force the guy to follow him uh, because at the end of the day, Jesus knew that, that you have to freely choose uh, to follow him. You have to freely choose to be his disciple. And so I think kind of this understanding of freedom, uh, allowing our conscience to dictate uh, the way we choose in matters of religion, this is kind of baked in to our nature as human beings, which is why uh, we advocate for religious freedom for all people, because as Christians, we believe the gospel uh, ultimately is going to be the most persuasive uh, message out there by which we can uh, share the love of Christ and invite people into our churches and to follow Jesus. You know, we, we, when we think about freedom, the opposite of freedom is those who are enslaved. Yeah. And Paul actually uses a lot of language about slavery and freedom. And he says, formerly we were slaves to our flesh, but now we are slaves to Christ, right? This idea that he identifies as a slave, not to the government, but to Christ. And which means that means by being a slave to Christ, we are free to obey Christ as we ought and as we should. And one of the concerns uh, with religious freedom. And the reason that's a big issue is because so many restrictions would tell people who are, who identify, who are in fact slaves to Christ, that you may not obey Christ because you must obey the government. Do you think that's the critical question, who you're a slave to? Oh, absolutely. At the, at the end of the day, Joseph, we're always going to be slaves uh, we're going to be mastered, uh, you know, by by something or someone, 
And uh, Jesus himself, you know, said you can, you, there's only one master that you can follow in the context. It's either uh, following him or following money. But this whole idea of freedom, let me, let me share one verse with you that I, I just pulled up while you were talking is uh, in Galatians 5 verse 1, uh, Paul writes, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. In context, what Paul's getting at, it, writing to his Jewish audience, is for a you know for many people in Paul's day and in many people in our day, the idea is you have to jump through hoops or do X, Y, or Z to find favor with God. Uh, but as Christians, we believe that's why Jesus went to the cross was to uh, fulfill the obligations of the law that you and I could not uh, fulfill. And so Christ has set us. Uh, free. We don't have to appease God by uh, keeping a list of do's and don'ts. Uh, but then that brings up the question, how do we exercise our freedom? Because we want to exercise our freedom responsibly. Yeah. One helpful way I've heard people talk about this issue of, of freedom is whether you are free from things or whether you are free to things. Whether our freedom is something that it provides us the freedom uh, to to have no restraints or whether we are now free to do the things that we ought to do. And I would argue that historically, in, in America at least, the concept of freedom is that you are free to do that which God calls you to do. And that's how they would have seen that and understood that because religious freedom was such an important issue. And immigrants from all over the globe literally came here for religious freedom because they felt they were being prevented from doing the things they ought to do. So they wanted to be free to do things. Now it seems, and tell me if you think I'm right about this or not, that the emphasis in the conversations about freedom is the desire to be free from things, free from any kind of constraints so that I can essentially right. do whatever I want whenever I want to without the moral restrictions that would keep us from doing some bad things that also compelled us to do things that the, that the original Americans really were interested in doing. No, you're absolutely right, Joseph. And, you know, uh, one of the things that's a blessing of this country is that we, we do have freedom, but because there are competing definitions of freedom, increasingly so, you see people in the name of freedom uh, advocate uh, for things that I think are, are not good. Uh, so you hear people saying, you know, freedom of choice when they're in the, in the abortion debate or freedom to identify as the, the sex or the gender that one wants to ad, uh, identify with. Uh, so you see people using this language of freedom, but really what that is, is that's buying into a whole worldview that sees freedom as license uh, to do whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it. And I would argue that that kind of mindset is actually one of slavery and of bondage. Uh, that's not true freedom in the sense that when you do whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want to do it without any oversight, uh, that's where you see cycles of uh, abuse and, and bondage. And I think that's why as Christians, we need to push back and say, well, actually freedom, uh, true freedom defined is we're free to obey the will of God and to serve him and to follow him and to invite other people into a relationship with him. I think Oz Guinness is the one who originally came up with this idea of the triangle of freedom. At least that's where I first encountered it, and perhaps he borrowed it from some play, somebody else. But your comments there just reminded me of that, of how there, there's, this, there's this connection between virtue, freedom, and religion. And they're all dependent upon each other. And what the, the golden triangle of freedom argues is that freedom depends on virtue, because if you are not virtuous – 
you cannot be free because ultimately that just devolves into anarchy. And at the same time, if you, you cannot be virtuous without religion and you can't have religion without freedom. And all of those things are dependent upon each other. We, we want religious freedom, uh, but we need freedom to have religious freedom. And the religious structure gives us the virtue that a culture and a society needs to preserve uh, to, to preserve freedom. So do you think that's a helpful way of, of thinking about this subject? Uh, no, I do, uh, Joseph. And so one of the reasons you and I are even having this conversation is because our our colleague, Dan Hart, actually wrote a blog, uh, Thinking Biblically About Freedom, that you can find at frc.org slash worldview. And in his blog, he actually quotes, um, I believe it's uh, President John Adams when he said that our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. Uh, it is wholly inadequate to the government of any kind. And so thinking about Adams, I think that maps really well with the Oz Guinness, where you see the, the freedom in virtue in religion kind of, it, it is a triangle. You, you, to have true freedom, you need to, to have virtue. Uh, to have this true virtue, it needs to be anchored or grounded into something that is real, that is objective. And as Christians, we would argue that is a biblical understanding of all these things that we're talking about. So I I think that framework that that Guinness gives is a helpful way to begin thinking through some of these uh, issues as, as a framework to think about freedom. You know, it's a conversation I have with my kids a lot because when they do something that they shouldn't do, they lose their freedoms. And I tell my kids often that you will either learn to control yourselves or someone will control you. And in that moment, it's me that will control you. Later in life, it could be the cops or it could be your boss. It could be, it could be you know, anyone. But if you do not learn to control yourself, someone else will be forced to control you. And that's one of the threats from a licentious culture sure. in which uh, this libertine idea of freedom, I can do absolutely anything I want without regard to the consequences culturally or to me or to you know my family or anyone else. I'm free so I can do whatever I want. And if people don't feel a need to control themselves because of our sinful nature, which the founders understood, but increasingly we don't acknowledge today, we make choices uh, justified by our quote-unquote freedom that cause tremendous damage. And when we start damaging our society because of our choices, inevitably someone has to step in, fill that void and prevent that from happening. And that's where you get authoritarian dictatorships, um, you know, a tyrannical kinds of governments that fill that void because absent some control mechanism that operates inside of us together to keep us from devolving into chaos, And we've seen versions of that very recently in our country's history where you see actual chaos and anarchy where there is no one there enforcing the law. Um, And historically, the reason we haven't experienced that is because we have a family structure. We have a civil society. We have churches. We have pastors and religious leaders and parents that enforce those laws uh, together. But as you lose that, something has to fill the void because in a Lord of the Flies kind of way, humans don't do well when we all feel like I get to do whatever I want. Want. Yeah, no, I agree with that, Joseph. And as you were kind of just going through that, it made me think of Alexis de Tocqueville, who talked about the little platoons uh, that kind of hold the glue that holds society together. You have the family, uh, you have the church, you have social organizations in our communities. And, and as those those uh, ties are, are severed, and as we have the breakdown of the family, you're right, we, what you end up with is 
anarchy, and then you, you, the, 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 the pendulum swings into authoritarianism. And so I think as Christians, one, we should, as you and I have talked about many times, you know, government is a good thing. You and I are not anti-government. Government's good. Romans 13 says Roman, or government uh, exists to uh, serve a God-ordained purpose. But that's why here at FRC, we had, one of the main things we care about is the makeup of the family. Because if you can get the family right, uh, there's so much that flows downstream from that in, in society and in culture and our communities. And so I think rightly understanding freedom and the relationship of all these different kind of components of our society is so key uh, to having a, a flourishing society that uh, is exactly what our founders envisioned, uh, going back to the Adams quote, that this society is for that moral and religious people, uh, which is the only way our constitutional republic, this experiment in representative democracy is actually going to work. Now, David, one other component of this I want to get to, and we're not going to have time to break this down, but we all know that we hold these truths to be self-evident, uh, that and. We hope these truths to be self-evident that our rights are endowed to us by our creator, right? That's the abbreviated version of that. Um, do our rights, does the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment, does that actually come from God or are those things that we make? I, I think things like the Second Amendment would be, you know, the, it comes from the Bill of Rights, those first 10 amendments of the Constitution. Uh, those are rights that, you know, people agree that these are things that we want to put in our constitution. So I think there are some rights that, you know, people come together to form governments that they'll guarantee these rights in the populace. But then things like religious freedom, I think that is a right uh, that ultimately does come from the Lord that we need to fight for. But I also think that the, the, the founders and part of their wisdom was being able to trace even something like the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, ultimately to the right to defend yourself. Sure. And, and the religious freedom is the right to worship God as you see fit. And it isn't that the specific application of the right to confront your accuser, which we also have, and the right to a speedy trial, uh, those are not necessarily uh, written in Scripture anywhere. But we can trace those back to the ideas of human dignity and the, and the idea— Although the right to confront your accuser can be traced to scripture because there too, uh, witnesses are required before hearing accusations against an accuser. But understanding that our application of these rights of freedom is really something, if done properly, we will trace back to what God has said is true about us and how we ought to treat each other. But David really enjoyed this conversation. As always, thanks for your time. Thank you, Joseph. And friends, that's what we got for the program today. Thank you so much for joining us on Washington Watch. We look forward to being with you next week. And Tony will be back with you on Monday. We'll see you then. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 